while we read. Here's the question. What is the most important ingredient for the spiritual growth of God's people? That question will help us get at the heart of our text this morning. So give it some thought as we read. What is the most important ingredient for the spiritual growth of God's people? With that in mind, let's pick it up in verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to him, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling out as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until the morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Let's ask God now in prayer to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we do give You thanks and praise that You are the God who speaks. 
You have not remained silent or distant or far off or disconnected from us, but You have spoken and You have revealed Yourself, Father, in the creation and most clearly in the person of Your Son, who is the very radiance of the glory of God. We praise You, Father, that You have spoken and revealed Yourself in the Scriptures in the Old and New Testaments so that we might know who You are. We ask, Lord, that as You have spoken clearly and finally in Your Word, that You would give us ears to hear it. And that we would respond, Father, with faith and obedience that pleases You. God, please give me grace as I speak now from this passage that You would please keep me from error and give Your people discernment that we might hold fast to the things that You have said and be built up in the truth for the glory of Christ's name and for the good of His body, the church. We pray. Amen. So, once more, here's the question before us this morning. What is the most important ingredient for the spiritual growth of God's people? Every true Christian I've ever met wants to grow. And I'm sure that rings true for all of us here this morning who know Christ by faith. We want to grow. We want our church to grow. We we long to see more godliness, more compassion, more obedience. So the question is not merely academic. This expresses the nearly universal desire of God's people. If we are to grow as the people of God, what's the one thing we cannot do without? Well, there are any number of possible answers, aren't there? Some people would say what's most important are extraordinary encounters with God. To grow, we need to push past the typical trappings of everyday Christianity and we need to attain some higher mountaintop-like experience with God. This is why so much of what passes for Christianity these days emphasizes experience over everything else. Because extraordinary encounters, it's claimed, are considered most important for spiritual growth. Still others would say what's most important is a unique moment of empowerment. A unique moment of empowerment. To grow, you've got to receive a deeper filling or a fresh outpouring of power. Listen, there's an entire wing of Christianity that builds all of their theology around this point. You need to get more power. That's what's wrong with your life, they would say. It's all about more empowerment that, again, pushes you beyond the quote-unquote normal Christianity that we live with every day. So, extraordinary encounters, unique empowerment, and that's just scratching the surface. I didn't dare Google this question because I was afraid what would come up. It would be terrifying. We could go on for some time and we still would not exhaust all that people might say. What's the most important ingredient? But what does God say in answer to our question? What's the one thing God knows we cannot do without? That's where our passage comes in. 1 Samuel 3. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, how is this text about the spiritual growth of God's people? I thought this passage was about God calling Samuel to be a prophet. It is about God calling Samuel to be a prophet. And that, friends, is precisely the connection. Think about a prophet's role in the Old Testament. What did a prophet do? He received the word of the Lord and he then proclaimed that word to God's 
people. Old Testament prophets were word-driven servants. Their lives were defined by this one thing. To give God's people what they needed most. Brothers and sisters, that's the answer to our question. By calling Samuel to be his prophet, the Lord is showing us the one thing we cannot do without. God's Word given to God's people. In fact, if you look closely at the passage, you can see very clearly that this is what the author wants us to take away. I know the calling of Samuel is fascinating, and there's all these questions as to why did it take four times. And we'll talk about some of that. But don't miss how the text is put together. Notice how it begins in verse 1. What's the emphasis? The fact that God's Word is rare in those days. You see? Now look at the end of the passage, verses 20 and 21. What's changed? God's Word is going out all over Israel through the ministry of Samuel. So you see, from beginning to end, the text is moving And it's showing us that what God's people need is His Word. Yes, Samuel is significant. Samuel is certainly significant. But his significance is tied to his ministry of God's Word among God's people. In that sense, friends, this passage is a very good example of how we should approach the Old Testament as Christians. Much of what happens in this chapter is unique to Samuel. None of us are prophets. And none of us will be called to be prophets. What's more, when God does place a calling on our lives, it doesn't happen like Samuel's calling. We should not expect the Lord to come and stand before us in order to reveal His Word. Friends, we've already received God's Word. Full and complete. And the inspired Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So the particulars of Samuel's experience are unique to Samuel. And we can't simply pick them up and translate them directly to us as though it was a one-to-one correspondence. That's not how these passages work. But, and this is the key, that does not mean this passage has no bearing on our lives. Far from it. We just need to think about the passage differently. Instead of focusing so much on Samuel's experience, we need to zero in on what God is doing in the life of His people. That's how the bridge is built from ancient Israel to 21st century Christians in the work of the unchanging God. So, will there be things we can take away from Samuel's calling as a prophet? Sure, there are a few broad applications that connect with us, but primarily, we're looking at what God is doing among His people through His Word. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to four points from this chapter concerning God's work in His Word. They move from a problem to a solution, just like chapter 1. Four points concerning God's work. We begin in verse 1 with a famine of God's voice. A famine of God's voice. As the chapter opens, we see Samuel continues to minister to the Lord under Eli's oversight. We don't know the exact chronology at this point or how long Samuel has been at Shiloh. But the timing is not as significant as Samuel's action. He's continuing to serve. But then notice the new detail that is added at the end of the verse. Notice again what it says. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. 
Remember, in the Old Testament, God communicated with His people through prophetic revelation. This is why prophets were sometimes called seers. They would receive a vision from God and they would then speak the content of that vision to the people. But at this point in Israel's life, that kind of communication is rare. There is a famine of God's voice. Now, you've got to let that sink in for a moment so you're gripped by the gravity of the situation. The living God who spoke creation into existence is scarcely speaking. The redeeming Lord who called Israel to Himself is rarely calling out. Understand, friends, this is the worst tragedy that can strike the people of God. This is the worst tragedy. To lose God's Word is to lose everything. Consider the effects of such a famine. Without the Word, God's people are in the dark. His Word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, Psalm 119 says. It illuminates our way in the world so that we walk in wisdom before God. But without that Word, we're left in darkness. What's more, without God's Word, the people starve. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God, Deuteronomy 8 says. So without that Word, we shrivel and we starve. And worst of all, without God's Word, the people are left to their own devices. The Word warns us and it shows us there is great gain in righteousness, Psalm 19 says. It guards us from the foolishness that resides in each of our hearts. Friends, this is why things were in such disarray in Israel at this point. The Word of the Lord was rare. Which means the people were left to themselves. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's a recipe for disaster. To lose God's Word is to lose everything. Now I want you to look down at what you're holding in your hands. Brothers and sisters, that Word you're holding is a treasure beyond compare. If to lose God's Word is to lose everything, then to have God's Word is to have all that we need. Friends, these are not just words on a page. This is light. This is food. This is wisdom. This is life. And amazingly, it is available to you this morning and every morning. It's available to you. This is one of the great blessings of the New Covenant. We have access to the Word of God that not even the great Samuel knew and experienced. You shouldn't be envious of Him. He would be envious of you. That you have the Word of God complete. We can feast on this Word, trusting that God has spoken once and for all through His Son, and His Word will never be taken away. You see, Israel's situation, as tragic as it is, should open our eyes afresh to the blessing we have received as God's new covenant people. We have His Word, brothers and sisters. But at the same time, along with this encouragement, there's also a conviction here as well. The Word of the Lord was rare in Israel's history because God held back from speaking to them. Our situation is different. If we have seasons where God's Word is rare, it is we who have withdrawn, not God. You see, this is the other side of that great new covenant 
blessing. Christ has been raised. He is seated at God's right hand and His new covenant is secure. We have God's Word complete forever given to us. So if there is a famine of God's Word in your life, it's because of your neglect, friend. Not God's. So let this brief glimpse of Israel's tragedy lead you to some self-examination this morning. It might make you uncomfortable, but that's okay. That's how God's Word works. It challenges us in our complacency. He wouldn't love us if He didn't challenge us in our complacency. Israel's famine had horrible effects. Is there a famine in your life? Are you neglecting God's Word? If so, friend, let me remind you that there is no growth on that path. There's only darkness and starvation and heartache. There is no growth on that path. Why not return to God's Word today and partake of the feast that He has given you this morning? That's why we read Psalm 19 for our call to worship because it puts the feast of God's Word on display. Whatever you need, it is here in God's Word. 2 Peter 1 All that we need for life and godliness has been given to us in the Scriptures. Pray this morning that God would open your eyes to see the inestimable treasure that is His Word. And then invest your life here and nowhere else in the Scriptures. Israel endured a famine of God's voice and their situation should both encourage and convict us to drink deeply from the Word of God. That's just verse 1. There's so much more for us from this scriptural feast. And in verses 2 to 10, we see our second point. The character of the God who calls. The character of the God who calls. When you read verses 2 and 3, it seems this was a fairly, fairly typical night at Shiloh. Eli is resting in his place, and since his eyes are getting bad, Samuel is nearby, probably just one room over, in case the old priest needs some help. The lamp of God has not yet gone out, so it's sometime during the night. It's not yet dawn. It seems like a fairly typical night. Then, beginning in verse 4, something unusual happens. God, the one whose voice has been so rare... God begins to speak. And He's calling Samuel. You see, once again, we find God working in an unexpected way. He's not calling Eli the priest. He's calling Samuel the boy. Samuel is the one God will use to work among His people. Now, as you heard when we read a moment ago, this call takes some time to work out. There is a learning curve, so to speak, for Samuel. This is all new to him. But instead of just focusing on Samuel's process, I want to draw your attention to God's character. This fascinating encounter is actually a gold mine of truth about who God is and how He works. How He works. There's three characteristics in particular that should get our attention. First of all, God's call reveals His grace. God's call reveals His grace. Look at verse Four, and note the suddenness of the moment. There's no introduction. It just says, then the Lord called Samuel. No setup, no introduction. Out of seemingly nowhere, God just starts talking. He just, his voice just breaks into the silence. 
You see, friends, we might easily overlook it, but this entire moment is a striking display of grace. Samuel didn't climb up into heaven to get God's Word. He didn't prove his faithfulness long enough to earn the privilege of this ministry. That's not how God works. The exalted God of heaven came down to him. And from the overflow of God's own gracious heart, He revealed Himself to Samuel. Brothers and sisters, the eras of salvation have changed, but this truth remains the same forever. Whenever God calls, it is always due to His grace, not our merit. Whenever. God does not call those who are deserving. He does not beckon those who are worthy. No, God calls those whom He chooses, and His choice is based entirely on His grace. This is true of conversion and ministry. Both ends. This is the truth. God calls those whom He chooses, and His choice is based upon grace. We are not a self-made people. Our lives, our identity, even our service are all due to the gracious call of the sovereign God. I hope that there's a lot of things going on this morning, but this one thing should be clear to us. God is gracious. Because without that, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. I had somebody ask me recently why the sovereignty of God's grace was such an important doctrine to me and to our church. Well, for one thing, it's in the Bible, so that's a start. But along with that, this truth has a unique power to kill sin and produce worship. The sovereignty of God's grace has a unique power to kill sin and produce worship. Pride is crushed and selfishness is rooted out when I see that everything I am owes entirely to God's grace. And even the deepest coldness of heart is warmed away when I reflect on God's grace that sovereignly called me to Himself. Friends, that's why we should care about and rejoice in this truth. Not because it somehow makes us more theologically minded than other people, but because it helps us grow in holiness and in worship before the living God. The Lord initiated with Samuel, and in that call we see a picture of God's matchless grace. Along with grace, God's call also reveals His patience. It also reveals His patience. It takes four times for Samuel to respond the right way. The first three times he thinks Eli is calling him, which makes sense. Samuel probably had to help the old priest quite often. But then verse 7 gives us further insight into the delay. Notice again what verse 7 says. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, we have to guard against reading our understanding of conversion back into that verse. This is not saying Samuel doesn't know who God is. Rather, the point is Samuel has not yet met the Lord through prophetic revelation. You see, the second half of verse 7 explains the first half. He's not yet encountered God in the revelation of His Word. And the key word is yet. Yet, Samuel does not yet know the Lord, but there's a sense of expectancy. There's a sense of expectancy that things are about to change. Now, what I hope gets our attention is God's patience through it all. It is a stirring display on God's part. The Lord doesn't stop after the first instance, or the second, 
or the third. No, He patiently continues to call. He bears with His servant. What's more, when Samuel does finally respond, the Lord doesn't scold him for being so slow. He doesn't say, hey, listen, buddy, next time you get it right on the first call, you got it? He doesn't do that. You see, friends, this is the character of God. He is patient with His people. That's not an excuse for us to drag our feet in listening to His Word, but it is a challenge for us to think rightly about God and how He deals with us. I'm reminded here of that wonderful statement from Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Brothers and sisters, God is slow to anger. That's true. He is patient beyond what we can even fathom. Is that how you think of Him? In your mind's eye, do you imagine God pacing in heaven, frustrated over how dense you are? If so, then you think about Him wrongly. See Him as a patient, kind Father bearing with you and bringing you along by His grace. His plans, friends, will unfold according to His timetable. He doesn't get frustrated at your slowness. He's patient. He's patient. Let this moment from Samuel's life adjust your view of the Lord. He is unfathomably patient with His children. So, God's grace, God's patience. There's one final feature to note. God's call also reveals His authority. God's call also reveals His authority. It takes Eli three times to figure out what is going on, but eventually he perceives what's happening. So he tells Samuel how to respond. Notice verse 9. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now Eli has been pretty dull at points in the first two chapters, but at this moment, he's exactly right. He's exactly right. This is the right response. The only response to the God who speaks. Notice how Eli's... Uh, answer to Samuel puts both God and Samuel in the right position. The Lord has the authority to speak and Samuel has the responsibility to listen. Those are the only two sides of the equation. There's no discussion, in other words. There's no debate. God speaks because He has the authority and Samuel listens because that's what you do when God speaks. You listen. And in verse 10, we see Samuel follows Eli's counsel. The Lord comes once more and He calls to Samuel and Samuel says, Speak, for your servant hears. Again, brothers and sisters, the times and the culture have changed, but there is a universal truth of the Christian life on display here. The only response to God's authoritative Word is to bow before Him in humble, obedient listening. That's the only response. Too often, I'm afraid, folks come to the Scriptures with an attitude of test and trial. They come with this attitude of test and trial. They want to debate what God says, and then only after it has passed their judgment will they submit themselves to it. Friends, that's a dangerous mindset that fails to understand the God with whom we are dealing. He is not our equal. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He alone has the authority to speak and we must bow before Him in submission. All true spiritual life begins here. 
with our faces brought low before God in humility. In fact, without that attitude, friends, there is no spiritual life. Faith begins by bowing before Him in submission. So ask yourself this morning, does my life display this kind of humble submission before God and His Word? Or am I living with that test and trial mindset? Am I debating what God has said and holding Him to my standard of right? Are you submitted to His Lordship in faith and obedience? And both are essential, both faith and obedience. Are you listening to God's Word, believing what He has spoken is true, and then are you obeying God's Word in recognition of His authority? Friends, this is an essential mark of Christianity. You cannot have God as Savior and not have Him as Lord. Faith begins with bowing before Him. Ask yourself, is that true of my life? God has all authority, and it is an authority to which we must submit. Well, I hope we see that even though Samuel's calling is unique, there's still much for us to consider and learn here. We are not called to be prophets, but in the calling of this particular prophet, we see God's character, His grace, His patience, and His authority. As we continue on in the passage, you'll notice that God's call is only the beginning for Samuel. Now he's prepared for ministry. And in verses 11 to 18, he gets his first assignment. And it's from this moment we find our third point the responsibility of God's messenger. The responsibility of God's messenger. Notice what happens in verses 11 to 14. The Lord repeats his message of judgment against Eli and against his household. So imagine you've never heard the Lord speak before, and then the first time you hear Him speak, He says, by the way, go tell your mentor that everyone in his house is going to die. If you look in the Old Testament, most of the time, God's first message to His prophet is typically hard. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's true in Samuel's life too. The Lord repeats this message of judgment against Eli. So this is the second time in two weeks We've heard this message and the severity isn't lessened, not in the least. Eli's sons have flagrantly sinned against God and Eli did nothing to restrain them. And therefore, since they have defied God's Word, there is no means of atonement for them. You cannot blatantly disregard God's Word and then expect that same Word to provide some means of escape for you at the last moment. No, friends, that's not how God works. Those who disregard God's Word will suffer judgment under that Word. That's the sobering takeaway from the life of Eli and his sons. And at this point in the passage, the question facing Samuel is simply this. What will he do with this Word from God? What will he do with it? Will he make it known or will he suppress it? And understand, friends, this would have been incredibly, an incredibly difficult moment for Samuel. As flawed as Eli is, he is still Samuel's mentor, so to speak, and, and an authority figure in his life. So imagine Samuel's inner turmoil at this point. I mean, verse 15 gives you a hint of it. Notice how Samuel gets up the next day and just quickly gets to work. 
He hopes the busyness will help him avoid Eli. Why? Because he's afraid of having to tell Eli the message. So this question is hanging out there. What will Samuel do with the Word of God? Then in verse 16, Eli steps in. This time he does call Samuel and he presses the young man to tell him the message. Notice the strong language in verse 17 that Eli uses. What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Now that might sound like an extreme statement to us. I mean, Eli places Samuel under an oath with the threat of a curse. But friends, that's how weighty Samuel's ministry will be. He must speak what God has spoken or else he will suffer terrible consequences himself. You see, this was the burden of every Old Testament prophet. They they received God's Word, which was an unspeakable privilege, but that privilege also came with this great responsibility. The responsibility to speak. This was the one standard for Old Testament prophets. Were they faithful to God's Word? Did they speak what God had spoken? And in verse 18, we see that Samuel passes the test. He holds nothing back. He tells Eli everything God said. And Eli, for his part, receives the word with humble submission. Notice what he says. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And so with that, Samuel is established as a true prophet of the Lord. Friends, this is what the narrative has been building towards since chapter 1. God will soon do many things in the life of Israel. And Samuel will be his mouthpiece for that work. He has a great responsibility to speak. Now, as we think about Samuel's responsibility as a prophet, I'm reminded of a statement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 that can help us make some application. Maybe you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. He's talking about preaching the Gospel. And and Paul says this, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the Gospel. You see, Paul knows there is a burden that comes with being entrusted with the Gospel. Or we could say it this way, God's Word creates a responsibility in the life of God's people. To whom much is given, much is required. God's Word creates a responsibility in the life of God's people. And that responsibility is to make the Word known. To speak what God has spoken. Listen, I don't want to twist anyone's arm or guilt trip anyone. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I do want us to understand that there is an incredible responsibility that comes with being entrusted with the Gospel. It's not a small thing, brothers and sisters. We are under necessity to make known what God has spoken. So there is a godly, Christ-honoring compulsion that, could, that should mark the lives of God's people. If it was true for Samuel, then how much more true should it be for us? Samuel received God's Word under the Old Covenant. We have received God's Word finished and complete in the New Covenant in Christ. What Samuel saw in types and shadows, we have seen in the flesh and blood face of Jesus. And so our responsibility is at least as great as Samuel's, if not greater. Do you feel that? 
We must be about the work of proclaiming what God has said. I'll confess that I do not live with this godly, Christ-honoring compulsion as I ought. I am too quick to overlook the responsibility that comes with God's Word. But I want to change. I want to feel the weight of the good news so much so that faithfulness pours out from my life. I think that's how it happens. The Gospel becomes weighty on us and it presses down upon our souls until faithfulness comes out. Maybe you sense that conviction as well this morning. If so, then I ask you very simply to join me in praying that God would give us a clear view of our responsibility to make the Gospel known. It is our responsibility. Whether it is in our homes or in our neighborhoods or in the far reaches of the globe, may we be burdened with the necessity of God's glorious, life-giving Word. He did not give His commission to other people. He gave it to us. And may that responsibility compel us outward with the good news God has revealed in Christ. Well, that brings us to the end of the passage. Verse 19 and following. And here we see our final point. The ministry of God's Word. The ministry of God's Word. The situation that opened the text is now reversed. We began with a famine of the Word, but now God's Word goes out to all Israel. Notice verse 20. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So from Dan, which was up in the far north, to Beersheba, which was the farthest point south that you could go in Israel, God's Word is going out everywhere through Samuel. Nobody has a famine anymore, is what the author is saying. As Samuel ministers also, God lets none of His words fall to the ground. Did you catch that in verse 19? He lets none of His words fall to the ground. That was the standard for prophetic ministry. Whatever the prophet said had to be fulfilled by God. In fact, that's how you knew if he was a prophet or not. He said something and then it did it come to pass. And that's what Israel sees from Samuel's ministry. The Lord was with Samuel and established all that he spoke. In fact, Samuel's ministry is so closely connected with God's Word that the two become almost indistinguishable. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. And the Word of Samuel came to all Israel. It's, it's, just, it's almost indistinguishable. The famine is gone and the Word is present in Samuel's prophetic ministry. And so now the question facing Israel is this. Will they listen to what God says through the prophet? As we continue on in the book, we're going to see just how important that question becomes. God is speaking. Will they listen to Him? But as we close, I want to highlight verse 21. This is what I want to leave us with today. Look at verse 21 and notice the connection between the knowledge of God and the Word of God. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the Word of the Lord. Friends, that's such a clear statement of how God works. We have the knowledge of God only through the Word of God. God reveals Himself by His Word. 
The context has changed from Samuel's day to ours, but this truth remains the same. To know the living God, we must come to Him through His Word. For it is His Word that reveals who He is and what He is like. So we return to that question from the outset of our time together. What is the most important ingredient for the growth of God's people? What's the one thing we cannot do without? It's not extraordinary encounters. It's not unique instances of empowerment. What's most important is God's Word. For in His Word, God gives us Himself. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to rejoice today in the incredible blessing that we have received in Your fully inspired, complete, final revelation